I'm changing many details in the story I'm telling to protect people's privacy. The story concerns a patient, a very young woman with a long, complex medical history. I spent time with her repeatedly when she was in the hospital multiple times over a period of several years. She had an illness that was life-threatening and required a series of high-risk surgeries. She was an alcoholic and a drug addict. She had had a bad childhood. She sometimes lived on the street, sleeping in a tent that the cops made her move every three days. But they treated her kindly. We'll call her Nancy. Nancy had a long history of not complying with medical advice. She didn't take necessary medications, didn't go to follow-up exams, didn't stick to the diet she was supposed to follow, and didn't seek help when she had frightening symptoms. My understanding is that her illness would have been quite treatable with surgery and medication years before if she had cooperated with medical professionals. But her condition snowballed over those years, and due to her noncompliance, she was now dangerously ill. She ended up back in the hospital after living on the street for several months when her symptoms became extremely severe. Nancy was scheduled for another high-risk surgery. She would have died without it. The result was not good, and I'll get back to this. Let's look at a very brief quote from Exodus. This is one book of the Bible that has a very appropriate name. It concerns the period of time from about 1450 B.C. until about 1200 B.C. It's the account of what happened after Jacob and his family entered Egypt. Hundreds of years after they came to Egypt, the Israelites had been enslaved. The book of Exodus tells us how they were freed. Through the hand of God, the Pharaoh loses control of them, and the descendants of Jacob flee into the desert. The book ends with Moses, now the leader of the Israelites, coming down from the mountain after 40 days to find the Israelites having abandoned God and turned to idolatry. They were worshiping a golden calf. Moses breaks the tablets that God has given him tablets containing the commandments. But God is forgiving. The people turn back to God. Moses goes back up the mountain and gets new tablets, and the Israelites erect a tabernacle to house those tablets. However, Moses will not enter the promised land with his people. The quote comes from deep within the book of Exodus. This part of the book concerns the covenant between God and the Israelites. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has given Moses the Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Decalogue. But there's more detail that must be conveyed to the Israelites in order for them to understand how they must live. Moses acts as a mediator between God and God's people. While the Ten Commandments deliver firm, absolute rules that people must follow, the material that Moses now conveys from God to God's people concerns somewhat fuzzier issues. 
This is what all of us experience in life. We know that there are certain things we must never do. But often there's a gray zone, a situation that's not so obvious. This is when the moral code that Moses delivers, rules that go beyond the Ten Commandments, comes into play. The material is often called the Book of the Covenant. It tells God's people how to prepare a proper altar to God and how certain offenses are to be dealt with, such as what to do when one person physically harms another, what to do when a person's property has been stolen or damaged, how to behave in an ethical way, and how to properly follow the religious calendar of the Israelites. Our quote comes from the part of the Book of the Covenant that deals with ethical ways of living. In particular, chapter 23, verse 7, tells the Israelites that they must not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. I, of course, is God, although this is a good translation for modern readers, and it comes from the New International Version. Perhaps a better translation can be found in the English Standard Version, which says this, Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Notice the word righteous. Yes, it more or less means honest, as the NIV suggests. But when we look at the original Hebrew of the book of Exodus, the word that appears is sedek. It's an important word used very frequently in scripture. It's related to the word lawful or just. In this context, it refers to someone's character. The Israelites are not to kill or put to death someone whose character is righteous, someone who lives the way God wants them to live and who has in their heart the desire to live in a just way. It's a rather subjective thing, something that can be very hard for an earthly legal system to judge. But our laws here in this country actually descend from the Book of the Covenant. Even today, our courts try to follow this law to not execute anyone who is righteous. We all have a responsibility in life to follow God's laws, to follow the Book of the Covenant, at least as much of it as is still relevant to Christians following the New Testament. There are rules about how to worship that don't apply to us under the New Covenant, but when it comes to the parts of the Old Testament Book of the Covenant that relate to ethical behavior, most of it is very applicable today. Certainly, we do not believe that someone who is righteous, who is honest, who is innocent, should die. In fact, we have to be more than just reactive in following God's laws. We must be proactive. It's not good enough to be passive to simply not sentence to death or kill a righteous person ourselves. We have to do our best to always protect righteous people. There are times when the law in the U.S. doesn't force us to take action. But the Book of the Covenant does require us to take action. God's laws are stricter than human laws. This is largely what's wrong with society today. So back to Nancy. She had friends and relatives who were, like her, 
struggling with drug addiction. Nancy had been caught having illegal drugs in the hospital on multiple occasions. You know, we think of nurses as people who are the hands-on deliverers of medical care, the people who are near us when we're in the hospital, who are aware of our immediate situation, who administer medication, who draw blood and watch our vitals for us. All of this is true. Nurses take on tremendous responsibility when caring for patients. But they do more, a lot more, than is technically required. They also comfort patients. They inform family members about the condition of their loved ones, and sometimes this is a nasty job. Nurses console people when loved ones die. Between their official and unofficial duties, nurses are often kept running nonstop through 12-hour shifts. While we rarely find ourselves responsible for the welfare of people outside of our families, nurses, over the course of a career, care for and protect many thousands of people. One of the things that our modern society is very lacking in is a sense that the rest of us should be vigilant, that we should be looking out after others. We should make sure that no righteous person is harmed. Nancy was being proactively protected by people, largely nurses. They were aware that Nancy had a problem with drug addiction. They asked the chaplains to help out with this. We were tasked with carefully filtering those who were allowed to enter the hospital and see Nancy. The decision was made to allow no adult visitors for her, as people had smuggled drugs into Nancy's room during previous hospital stays and once already during that current visit. She was an addict, and addicts will do just about anything to obtain drugs. They'll also use drugs even under the most dangerous circumstances, such as before a critical, perilous surgery, when the patient is already horribly weakened. We allowed only her children to see her, and they had to be carefully supervised. I was called in one evening, the night before her big surgery, to escort two of her three kids in and out of the hospital. I met them with their grandfather, who had custody of them, at the front door. It was two girls, one in middle school and one in kindergarten. They were polite, mature kids. The big one was a loving, protective big sister who held the smaller one's hand as we went up the stairs, took the little one's coat off of her outside their mom's ICU room, and helped the younger one open the little carton of milk that a nurse had gotten for the small girl. Their mom was very frightened about her looming surgery, but she was joyous at seeing her girls. I remember how hollow and aged her relatively young face appeared. I stayed with them in the ICU room. There was concern that some adult might have given one of the kids something illicit to pass on to their mother, and my job was to make sure that that didn't happen. The big one talked to their mother while the little one knelt on the floor, and using a chair bottom as a desk, she drew pictures for her mommy. When it came time for the visit to end, 
They gave their mother big hugs. The older girl promised to look after the younger one, and Nancy tearfully said goodbye. I led them out to their grandfather. I went back to Nancy's room and talked to her for a bit, trying to help calm her so that she could sleep a little before her surgery. She thanked me repeatedly for taking her kids in to see her, but she looked desperate. I went home. Nancy was due to be taken into the OR at 6 a.m. Early the next morning, the phone woke me and my wife up. It was another chaplain, a chaplain who happened to be on call early that morning, and she told me that Nancy was dead. She said that as soon as they had Nancy in the OR and had administered anesthesia, her heart stopped. The shocked OR team worked furiously for over an hour to restart her heart. But she was finally declared dead, the surgery never having even begun. In the minutes after she was declared dead, the doctors began to wonder what had gone wrong. In particular, they wondered if perhaps someone had slipped drugs into the hospital and given them to Nancy in her ICU room before the surgery. They began searching through hospital video. They found Nancy's sister, who was also known to be an intravenous drug user, on hospital surveillance video. They discovered that very early that morning, Nancy's sister had shown up at the hospital and begged the nighttime administrator in charge of the hospital to be allowed in to see her sister before her big surgery. She apparently got teary, and the administrator felt sorry for her. She was let in, and she was carrying a backpack. Many people worked hard to protect Nancy. But somebody who did not have her best interest in mind slipped into the hospital and apparently gave her drugs. It seemed that the two sisters must have gotten high together just an hour or so before Nancy was taken to surgery. With drugs still in her system, Nancy was put under anesthesia. The combination of chemicals was apparently too much. She died immediately. Soon thereafter, a syringe was found in Nancy's room. But here's the big question. Was Nancy innocent and righteous? Yes, she was an addict, born with a vulnerability that she was unable to conquer. She was actually a very sweet person. But another person someone who certainly should have been motivated to protect Nancy. Well, God will not acquit the wicked who commits a homicide. One of the greatest sins that we commit as a civilization is that we do not look after each other. One of the principles of early Christianity was to be responsible for the welfare of other Christians. In fact, many of us are not aware that the early Christians practiced charity, including providing food, money, housing, and physical protection to non-Christians. It was enough to prevent a Roman emperor named Julian in about 360 AD from being able 
to revive paganism. People understood that Christians, and not the Roman government, took care of them. We recently abandoned Friends of the United States in Afghanistan. Our society has forgotten about protecting the righteous.